asking logistics, man. Ready to talk logistics? But how? It can't be done. We should probably figure out some logistics. You can't really empathize with supply chain people until you're in it and you're doing it and you see the things that go wrong. That's Nick Sharma, CEO of Sharma Brands and co-founder of Hooks. In 2019, Nick was named in Forbes 30 Under 30 for marketing and advertising. Prior to starting his own companies, Nick was an account executive at Gravity4 and director of D2C at Hint Inc. With Sharma Brands, Nick invests, advises, and operates brands such as Feastables, The Pill Club, and Jim Beam Whiskey. This past April, Nick launched Hooks, helping clients build digital experiences for potential customers. On today's episode, Nick discusses the challenges of sourcing overseas, how e-commerce will continue to innovate, and why the most successful supply chains always have a backup plan. Really insightful conversation with Nick, so I hope you enjoy. But first, a brief word from our sponsor. This podcast is powered by the team at Stored. Turn your supply chain into a competitive advantage. Go to Stored.com to learn more. I'm your host, Alex Kent, Director of Sales at Stored, and this is Supply Chain Therapy. All right, here today with Nick Sharma, CEO of Sharma Brands, as well as co-founder of Hooks. Nick, thanks for joining us. Two questions to start off. One, how are you? Two, there was a tweet a couple of weeks ago that said that if you have a direct-to-consumer podcast, you have to have you on. Uh, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, thanks for having me. Let's see. I'm doing great. Today's a good day. We bought a brand recently, which is what I was waiting to to do a little bit more digging of before we did this podcast. And I just came back from yeah. our uh, photo shoot for that. So doing good. It's a bit hot in New York. I'm a little sweaty, but it's all good. And let's see. Yeah. And the podcast question, I think Eli or Cody tweeted about tweeted that. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why that's the case. Maybe it's because they just need this, you know, this nice little Indian hairy face on the podcast as like the opening way. But yeah, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> All right. Well, well, luckily for our listeners, we're going to dive in and teach them everything they need to know and why you're the podcast guy for direct consumer, among other things. So let's dive right in. Really want to talk about your current role, what you do with, with Sharma Brands as CEO and what that's all about. So kind of give our, our listeners the background. Yeah. So basically, I oversee three companies, three services businesses, and and we just bought a consumer brand recently that I've been overseeing as well. So our services businesses, the first one is called Sharma Brands. That's essentially, we come in and we become a brand's internal direct-to-consumer team. So companies that are either launching from scratch, you know, we worked on Feastables, we worked on Give Beauty with Gwen Stefani, Jolie, which, among a, n- a number of other brands. They come in and they basically say, all right, this is, this is our idea. This is our product. Here's what we want to do online. Now you guys go make it happen. And so everything from technology integrations, you know, helping with packaging, website design, you know, emails, paid media, ad creative, all that kind of stuff. We, we basically come in and, and do all, all of that for the brand. The other way we work with brands is companies that are already large, large and in charge, you know, Bacardi, Beam Center, Crocs, et cetera. They come to us and they say, hey, we, we're either doing pretty well online or we know that we need to be online. Help us get there. And we kind of become this little SWAT team that can come in, take on a project, execute it from start to finish. And basically, you know, it becomes a very low lift on their end for resources, but their goals get accomplished. And so that's another fun way that brands use us. And then the second company is called 1180, which is just 1180. It stands for the Penal Code of Speeding in New York. And essentially, 1180 is just a branded content studio. So we work with brands that are already crushing it online. 
And we just help them hit the gas a little bit harder in terms of customer acquisition. And then the third one we just launched, which you mentioned is Hooks, and that's basically landing pages as a service. So the most common request that we get at Sharma Brands is essentially, hey, I'm launching a new product, I'm launching a new collection, launching a new brand. We have a Black Friday sale coming up. We have you know, a Mother's Day sale coming up. Can you help us build a landing page as a one-off thing instead of us being a big you know, retainer client? And, and so we just said, all right, well, you know, we're getting so many of these. I think we can spin this out to be its own business. And kind of like an e-commerce site, you go to our site, hooks.co, you put your credit card in, you pay for a page. Two to three weeks later, you've got a fully functional and live page that we wireframe, copyright, design, develop, and deploy. And, and then the last one, I won't name it, but it's a brand that, we just, that we're working on relaunching as of now. And, and so one of the reasons I, I was pushing this podcast recording down, down the road a little bit was, you know, I'm so focused on the marketing and the distribution side of things. And I, I really wanted to do this podcast, but I was like, wait, let me, let me go get my hands dirty. Let me go visit the production facility. Let me go visit the fulfillment center. Let me do these contracts, see how these contracts work. Let me go, fi- let me go get screwed by a couple of operational issues. Uh, and then I can speak to it a lot better. So I've gotten screwed. I've signed the contracts. I've met the people in the fulfillment center. I'm ready to talk. All right. Well, good stuff. And, and we'll definitely tap into that. On Sharma Brands, really quick, you, you mentioned you know, some of the users, some of the customers that you guys have, but name three things that they're really coming to you to, to solve for them. I, I think you tapped into it nicely, but I just want to sort of reiterate you know, everything that you guys are doing to help those customers. Yeah, I mean, I think a big one is technology, and that covers everything from, you know, how is our website being built in a way that's telling a brand story the right way, but also focused on driving revenue, along with all of the software integrations on the back end that, you know, help create a cohesive web experience for somebody coming in. And that's everything from like the site that they see, the pieces they don't see in terms of how their orders are getting kitted and put together on the back end, you know, the subscription software, the analytics software, the heat mapping, the conversion optimization, the review collection, the SMS, the email, all that kind of stuff. So we, so I, I put all that into technology. I think the other one is basically, you know, some brands come to us and, you know, we, we just got this fresh funding and we don't want to get screwed. So help us not get screwed. And, and so we'll help them source the right partners, vendors, teams, agencies. And, and not only that, but we bring so much business to other vendors that we probably get better pricing than anybody could get. And so we're able to help them go get, you know, basically the best possible pricing that they can get. And then the third one is like basically, you know, really around launches, whether it's a a brand that already exists and is doing well and says, we need to launch X product by this date, or it's a completely new brand that says, you know, like we had an alcohol company we launched last year called Spritz. And they said, this is our launch date. We have to hit this launch date. It's on us. Like it's our job to make sure that whatever goes wrong, there's always things that go wrong. Whatever goes wrong, we have to have three backup plans kind of always moving in parallel so that when something does go wrong, we're never missing that launch date. And uh, and the reason I brought up Spritz was because there's a funny story there where we were, you know, basically two days out from the store going live, Shopify for some reason, or actually no, there was a very obvious reason. The the previous agency that worked on the on the you know was not forwarding us the the compliance documents we needed to fill out because they're selling alcohol on Shopify. So they need a separate set of documents. Luckily, we have a guy at Shopify who came through for us on his wedding day in between his wedding ceremony and taking photos with his bride. 
he was coming back on Slack and helping us get this issue resolved across the board. But it was just a great example of like, all right, you know, these people told us they have a date for their launch and they can't miss the date. And so, you know, we, we pull every stop out we need to in order to make sure that they don't miss that date. That's customer obsession in a nutshell, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. So ne- next question and, and diving into the, more of the supply chain, because I, I feel like you mentioned you pushed this out and we're, we're obviously excited to have you on. But what did you learn visiting the operators, visiting the fulfillment center? What did you least expect? What was most surprising to you? Let's just dive right into it. You know, it's funny. In, on the side of marketing, you do this like annual review with your, with your finance team at the end of every year, right? And your CFO comes to you and says, hey, uh, great job on the e-commerce business. We saw that, you know, I'm just making numbers up. We saw that we had 300,000 people hit the site organically and you had a 4.2% conversion rate. I'm going to put in the Excel sheet that next year we're going to hit a 5.2% conversion rate and we're going to get 600,000 people organically. And you're just like, wait, what are you talking about? Where are these people coming from? How is this conversion rate magically going up? You just pulled this out of thin air. But you know, to him in the Excel sheet, it's like, okay, if I put in the Excel sheet, everything should work out. And it's funny because that's like, you know, my 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 thinking going into, you know, meeting the production facility and the fulfillment center and all this, I'm like, you know, what what could go wrong? There's nothing that could go wrong. You know, if everything is like cookie cutter, if these guys say they're gonna pick it up on at this time and it's gonna get put in a truck and it's gonna get dropped off here everything's going to be totally fine. There's no room for error. And of course, you know, we see, oh, a pallet arrived and it's so, you know, this bucket of raw ingredients is not usable anymore. The trucking company that was supposed to come pick it up didn't show up on time. That pushed us back two days. That pushed the intake back two days. And, oh, and then it gets delivered on a Friday. Well, now nobody's going to log it in during the weekend. And so now the the relogging process starts on Monday. We're not getting in until Wednesday. And so there's just so many things that go wrong. And, you know, I, I truly think like you can't really empathize with supply chain people until you're in it and you're doing it and you see the things that go wrong. Because before that, you're just looking at it and you're thinking, you know, from the outside, like whether you're on marketing team or the finance team or whatever, you're just looking at it and saying, how do these guys not do their job properly? You guys, <laughs> your supply chain guys got one job. It's to make sure the truck gets there on time. You know, how do you not do that? But there's so many variables that are completely out of your control that that you just can't, you know, you just can't do anything about. And so, so anyways, I think it's just so far what I've learned is like you have to prepare for everything to go wrong and in the sense that you have to have backup plans and basically, you know, if you're, whether it's you're running a sale and you're like, you know, this sale's not going to do that well, you got to prepare for a sellout. If you're, if you've got a, a truck coming to pick something, you know, be ready that one of your pallets is going to be completely destroyed by the time it arrives for, for no reason, just be prepared. So yeah, that's kind of the learnings I've got so far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it speaks a lot to just true partnership and open communication, right? I mean, you don't want to be finding out or one of your brands doesn't want to be finding out that, that something went wrong when they have that sale that's coming up and, you know, that sale is launching Monday hey, the inventory is not in stock or, you know, there's an issue or out of packaging or, or whatever it may be. You have to have that open communication with 
all your different partners from your your technology systems to your warehouses, your fulfillment centers, your transportation providers. And, and really that clear path of communication is just so important. And I love how you said, you know, oh, what what are they doing wrong? Why can't they get it right? It, there's a lot of variables, right? It, yeah. it's, it's just like um, the story you mentioned about Shopify and just, oh, we need this specific compliance document to launch this alcohol brand. And, you know, if you don't have it, you're up against the wall. So I love that and, and yeah. can't wait to continue to learn from you on on what you're finding out. And I'm sure we'll have many more conversations about that. Let's get into our next segment, all about challenges. Houston, we have a problem. Nick, really, we just talked about some of the challenges, but, you know, what are three individual challenges you or the brands you work with are, are facing in regards to the supply chain today? I mean, I feel like I hear about it in different ways or waves. You know, for the longest time in with beverage, it was like there's no cans available, there's no bottles available. And I think that was like Q3, maybe until the end of Q1 this year, that was a pretty constant complaint was, yeah, there's just no cans. So I went out and found a can guy and now I've got a can guy in my pocket. But cans cans were on a shortage. You know, I think, honestly, I think another another big just a a tough thing in supply chain is so, so many things are sourced overseas. If you don't speak the language from where you're sourcing the product, you're kind of already at a disadvantage because you're going to get ripped off and you're probably not that high on whoever the other person, you know, on the other side, you're, you're probably not that high on their priority list. That's another challenge I see. I think another challenge too, just financially is like, you know, there's a lot of companies today that are not able to grow, not because they don't have customer demand or they don't have innovation in their pipeline, but it's because they can't find a way to fork up a ton of capital, invest it in supply chain, you know, stock up a bunch of inventory and then deplete it. Because it's like, that that's a lot of cash just being held, you know, from one place to another. And, you know, I think the last one is probably which I'm hearing less and less about now. I haven't personally experienced this, but I'm hearing about it less is the price of a container coming from overseas and and the price of air freighting has skyrocketed as a result of COVID. But I believe it's slowly coming down. I don't think it's back to pre-COVID levels, but I want to say it's about half. It's definitely coming down somewhat and we'll see we'll see how this goes because we are diving right headfirst into peak container shipping again. And it feels like we were just here (laughs) two weeks ago. But curious on the financing point, how do you address that? And and what do you recommend to to new brands that are getting started and may not have that capital to to put up and bring more inventory into the United States or have enough safety stock to have that sale or or, any of the the above? (laughs) How are you addressing that? How are you kind of advising some of those brands? Yeah, I mean, it really depends like how much capital is needed and and kind of how how a founder wants to approach it. So there's obviously there's there's kind of short term ways to do it for lesser amounts of capital, which is, you know, hey, we're going to get a little bit more aggressive on our pricing. You know, we're going to do things that that can speed up the volume of, of sell through, basically, you know, essentially like running promotions. And that's that's one way to do it. You know, if, if I was a small business small business, meaning like less than maybe 10 million in revenue. And I needed some amount of capital. Personally, I would probably go and also just try to find some some high net worth individual who is already putting their money in different places and say, hey, you give me a million dollars, I'll give you a million 10 back in X amount of time. 
And, you know, there's probably a good amount of convincing that has to go on there. But then there's now, obviously, there's fintech companies that exist, you know, Wayflyer, Settle, ClearBank. I think there's another one called Ample Capital or something kind of like that. And essentially, you're, you're basically just buying debt from them or a line of credit. And, and those have some sort of an interest on top. And then, you know, the, the last, maybe the second to last resort is you go raise a safe note which is basically saying like, hey, we're putting a cap on on the value of this company, but we're going to intake a legitimate amount of money. And then the last is just straight equity financing. So, you know, we're doing $8 million a year, but we need $2 million. So we're going to go raise at a $20 million valuation and give up 10% of the company, which is essentially what you see on like Shark Tank. Of course, everyone's favorite. And I'm curious... on your opinion of where do we stand in the life cycle of e-commerce? Are we still in the beginning stages? Are we, you know, here at 30 years old? Are we, you know, getting ready to retire? Like, where do we stand in e-commerce today? And and as it stands in the the life cycle of, you know, brand new or brands kind of getting the hang of it now? Well, every time I think we're early, it's like, you know, I could always say we're, we're late. Like I could say we're early now, but I could also say we're late now. You know, I think e-commerce is a lot like technology in the sense that in the present moment, it feels like it's doing well, or maybe not doing well, but like it's thriving. It's kind of always thriving. And, you know, innovation is constantly happening within e-commerce and within the softwares around the e-commerce world. Over the last like probably two years, I would say, companies like Stored have come in and driven a ton of innovation around things that were, you know, pretty I would not 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 say boring, but like very anal, um, you know, fulfillment and supply chain. Like that was all basically Excel sheets, and now there's software there, and there's cohesiveness there. So I, you know, I feel like we're kind of in its prime, but I feel like we're gonna always be in its prime. I mean, it's like saying is is retail dead? I mean, e-commerce is just another channel of retail, really, right? People are always gonna be buying things for as long as humans exist. There's gonna be retail, and there's gonna be buying and selling, and there's gonna be transaction. And all of that is going to require more customer intent. So you're going to have to be marketing in different ways and innovative ways. I think you could say like the the prime of Facebook ads, you know, we're probably getting close to maybe the the 60 year old there, you know, maybe not j- retirement just yet, but we're definitely inching toward it while maybe, you know, we're still toddlers when it comes to things like uh, TikTok or branded content or working with creators and things of that nature. All right, so moving on to the next segment. The venting couch. Little talk, let me vent. Come on, vent. Go ahead, vent. I just needed to vent. Where'd you vent? Vent your frustrations. We all have had traumatic experiences when it comes to logistics, but it certainly doesn't have to be that way. If you're ready to heal your relationship with your supply chain, check out store.com to learn more. All right, what stories do you have for the venting couch? Any stories you want to vent about? Yeah, I mean, when I was at a company called Hintwater two years ago, there was, you know, kind of this show that happened where, so I came from this world of advertising technology. And one of the things I used to do is work with publisher sites to help them drive more traffic to their sites, essentially those like very publishers you see at the bottom of like articles under the you may also like tab. And, you know, it's like, you won't believe what this celebrity looks like 25 years later. And you got to click it because you got to see what this, you know, childhood star you watched growing up looks like today. 
And so I would take those guys and put them online. I got very good at understanding copywriting and advertising on, on Facebook. And, you know, I got to this company Hint and, and I started running some basically branded content, editorial type stories where, you know, we were talking about the founding story of the brand and why it's so great and whatnot. And, you know, we went from doing double digit new customers a day to quadruple digit new customers a day without really ta- telling any people on the ops or supply chain or, you know, like nobody. <laughs> and we used to have, I think there was probably a month or two months where like every other weekend we were just sold out. And it was a total show because the, the operations team was always mad at me. The, you know, the transportation team was always mad at me. Like the CEO was mad at me. The COO was mad, at, but I'm sitting over here like, guys, we just got, <laughs> we got 25,000 new customers this week. <laughs> we're they? like, we don't care. You're screwing they- up all of our trucking, all of our bottling, all of our storage, our warehouses. And it was in, in the end, it was for the better, better because we built a much better infrastructure around all of this. Right. But yeah, it was a show. It's like the brand was crawling and you made it sprint and it was still crawling behind. I was sprinting. Right? Yeah, sprinting. Yeah, they, I took were, pre-workout. I dry scooped some pre-workout and I came in sprinting. <laughs> oh, man. What? I mean, were they more mad that there was no warning or were they more mad that, hey, we we are launching, was, we're getting all this attraction to the site or you know to the brand and, and we don't have enough product to meet the consumer need? Yeah, it was more that like I was not communicating properly, which I don't know if I would take responsibility for that, <laughs> but cuz everybody had access to the numbers, but it was mainly like okay, you're not communicating that you're running a sale, you know, you got to tell us 2-3 weeks in advance when you're going to really crank these things up. Meanwhile, you know, anybody who's a performance marketer or a growth marketer that's listening will know this feeling like you don't know when you're going to have good acquisition costs. But when you do, you hit the gas as hard as you can. That's right. When you don't, you scale back. Meanwhile, you know, they wanted me to predict when Facebook was going to give me good acquisition costs. I was like, I can't do that. You guys just need to be ready at all times. Or we need to increase our baseline for what we deem as an okay day, which is what we ended up doing. Yeah. Have you read the book Extreme Ownership? I haven't. Anyway, there's a concept in there called cover and move. And, and that's exactly it is, you know. Before you do something or you press a button, just make sure that everyone's okay with it. So that's the lesson there. And exactly. Something we talk about here at Sword too. So, all right, moving on to the future. What lessons from the past two, two and a half years have you learned that implementing for the future and whether it's with Sharma Brands and the brands you're helping, whether it's Hooks, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, whoever you're helping, you know, what lessons are you are you telling them and, and implementing for the future? I think one is honestly like trust, trusting partners, vendors, outside agencies, freelancers, contractors. You just got to trust them to do what they what they promise they're going to do. You know, you hired them for a reason and you clearly went through some sort of a vetting process in order to get them in. And once they're in, that's when you got to just trust. So I think that's one thing that that now we practice pretty heavily. Another one I would say is <laughs> negotiation. Like <laughs> I, I, I always respect when somebody comes to us and tries to negotiate. And, you know, I got to give the credit to them for, for actually doing it because that shows me that they actually care about their bottom line. They care about their own P&L. But I'll also negotiate the 
out of everything myself. So <laughs> that's why I can respect that. Legal. Legal is another big one that I learned when I was at Hint. You know, basically every contract was taken into consideration as if, you know, if we were about to get sued for this, like where are all the holes? Right. And I think a lot of people tend to sign contracts and, oh, this is my buddy. He's a contractor or, oh, you know, my buddy, the photographer, he's not going to screw with us. You know, we can just sign this and move forward. Or, oh, a buddy of mine owns this company and they're going to contract us to work with them. You know, let's just sign the contract and move on. And, you know, not everything ends in under a rainbow holding flowers with a nice sunshine and investing in proper legal infrastructure up front, contracts, NDAs, you know, if somebody sends you a contract, you get a lawyer to just quickly review it, even if it costs them an hour of their time or 30 minutes of their time, it will save you tons of money down the line. And I wish somebody had told me about that much sooner. And then I would say the last one is probably, you know, I think like, I think a big thing that I learned in the companies I came from is how important culture is. Yeah. Team culture and culture among, you know, your partners, your vendors, your basically everybody you work with or touch, your clients, you know, culture is huge. And so, you know, I saw this TikTok clip. I can't believe we're saying that now. <laughs> I saw this TikTok yesterday with the founder of HubSpot who's got one of the largest tech companies, but also is rated one of the highest places to work. Yeah. And he was talking about how culture is essentially a product. And so, you know, when you build a product, you go ask your customers what they want. And so the same thing with the culture. As you build a culture, you make sure it's aligned with what the employees want or what the partners want, the vendors want. But I've just learned that culture is such a huge advantage. Like I think I give a lot of the credit to being able to hire good people to the fact that our culture is pretty, you know, illuminated outside of just our own Slack and our own group chats. Like there's people I meet and they'll come up to me and say, oh my God, you know, I follow this person from your team on the internet and like your company seems like such a fun place to work (laughs) or, you know, you guys do some awesome stuff. And I'm like, you have no idea what we do, but you've probably just seen a glimpse of it through something, you know, that we've put out, or maybe it's just even a photo where everybody's looking happy, or people are excited to talk about what they're doing. And so I think culture is a huge one. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. I think, you know, obviously, you want your every day to be fun. But even when it's when it's tough, and you have to be able to grab arms with those people and be like, all right, we're going to war. Here we go. Let's, let's get this done. And, and then we can have fun later. Right. I mean, it, it is work it, and yeah. you know, everything that the culture of a, of an organization speaks of there's good times and bad. Right. Totally. I mean, when we launched hooks about six weeks ago, we were essentially flooded with people who wanted pages yeah. and we didn't really have a team in place. And that was, I think like a real test of culture on our end because we had people that were you know, they were just like, what the f- is this? Like, we, we just got flooded with this. Like, there was no preparation. But because we had the underlying culture as a team, as much as it sucked to be completely underwater and feel like there's always some fire happening, you know, we knew that if we got through it, we got to the other side of this first batch. We were going to be able to hire people. We were going to make sure there was a process in place. And it just wasn't going to happen again. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last question, then we'll get to the speed round. Predictions in e-commerce for the next two years. We talked about lessons from the past two years. Predictions for the next two years. What do you think is going to happen? What's going to change? Where are brands going to be focused? Give me what you got. Let's see. I think, I mean, I think we've kind of seen this uh, shift so far in brands that are like brands today are either high consumption, high margin, or they are high margin 
low consumption. Basically, people are chasing margin now. And especially, you know, we talked about some of the issues around financing and cash flow earlier. I think that's a huge reason and a huge propeller of that. It's very rare that you'll find a low margin, low consumption brand popping up today. And usually when people see that, they think, oh, that's a bad idea. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's one thing. I think another one is is we're going to see a lot more brands built by creators. You know, creators are essentially people with audiences. So whether it's a creator in the B2B world, which I think Hooks is actually a, a prime example of a creator brand in the B2B world, or it is in the B2C world where you have somebody like Mr. Beast launching Feastables and building a yeah. global snacks brand. You know, the last few years, non-creator brands, they're spending 40 cents of every dollar they raise in advertising. And when you have a creator, they are the ad and they are the distribution, their network, their their own channels, their own videos, their own content. You know, it's all opportunity to to basically do marketing. And so, you know, like a lot of the creator brands we work with, they don't necessarily spend nearly as much money as most of these brands do that are doing similar revenue numbers. And and it's also just crazy to see not only the consumption of that brand, but then the reactions from the consumers who are so in love with that creator, then try the product and experience that product and feel like they're a part of that creator's world. So I think we're going to see a lot more creator brands. I would agree with that. I I have seen it a little bit with with creator brands where it's like, hey, we're the we're the supply chain. Can you let us know before you send out that next Instagram post so that when you launch that new link, <laughs> yeah. that, that we're prepared to to get all the orders out? So exactly. the same thing like your hint water stories. Like, just let us know your uh, schedule yeah. for posting that new link. <laughs> oh man! All right, yep. good stuff. Let's wrap up with some quick hitters here with the the man, the myth, the legend, Nick Sharma. Nick, favorite hobby outside of scaling brands? Favorite hobby outside of scaling brands? I love going to Rumble, which is like boxing and oh, okay, it's kind of like okay. Barry's workout here. Very nice. Yeah. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Let's pull it up. We got the numbers here. <laughs> that is a that is a uh, a nod to Nick's Sunday newsletter. If you don't subscribe, here we go. He's showing me got, well, seven and a half. It. Is that right? Yeah, basically seven forty three. Seven forty three. What is it on the weekends? At least nine? Is that what we're aiming for? Yep. Good stuff. Yesterday, right. Sunday night, <laughs> 9.43. That's, that's the sleep that you need to, to scale brands. Okay, if you weren't <laughs> an entrepreneur, where would you work? Well, one, I think I would love to do something with kids. I love teaching and I love like I love being able to take things that I know that aren't necessarily taught and teach them. So maybe that or maybe I'd be DJing. <laughs> I used to DJ a lot in high school and, and I was pretty good at it. So maybe I would go back to that. Uh-oh. Here we go. Get some equipment. Let's hear it. All right. Last question. I already know the answer because you just showed me before we hopped on the recording, but the last thing you bought online. I just bought a uh, an eight gigabyte, if you could believe that, eight gigabyte iPod Touch, still running on the OG iOS. There's the YouTube app still on on the iPod, and it was fourteen dollars on eBay. And I thought, what better way to spend fourteen dollars than to buy an iPod Touch? <laughs> are you even going to be able to download any? Are you even going to be able to download like any new apps because it's running on the, the original OS? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. 
That one doesn't even have a camera either, does it? No camera. No camera. I wanted to get the the iPod with the click wheel. I couldn't find like the OG OG one. And then the iPod Classic was the one I was going for next. But those are so expensive. Yeah. And so then I was looking at the touches and this one was $14. And I was like, all right, well, this is better than ordering Uber Eats. I, I used to have the uh, blue iPod mini. And to my brother, if you are listening to this, I still think you stole it and sold it. But it was awesome. And I was still I sometimes yeah. I think about it. I'm like, I still wish I had that. I want that old playlist back. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good stuff. That's a wrap. Nick, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Glad we got to do this. Thank it was you. a ton of fun. Also want to want to mention to the listeners uh, to check this out. Again, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Get the best skin of your life in just two weeks with SoloWave. Reduce the appearance of wrinkles, fine lines, blemishes, and dark circles with our number one rated skincare red light therapy wand. Depuff and energize the skin in as little as five minutes per day, three times a week. Join thousands of happy customers and try yours today at solowave.co. Thanks for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy, a podcast brought to you by Stored. Make your supply chain a competitive advantage. Go to stored.com to learn more.